0: I want to begin with two stories that have different outcomes in prayer. I got to give you a little bit of context. I actually tell these stories in the book, uh, Speak Up, God is Listening, Listen Up, God is Speaking. And uh, I'm just going to give you the highlights of them because they'll set the tone of where we're going today. Uh, my wife and I and our three kids were missionaries in Mali, West Africa. We were assigned there for 10 years. In the last four years, I was the field director. And so we uh, were on some of the most dangerous and difficult roads you could ever be on. So we came back to the United States after five years, thinking we're coming back to this place of safety and comfort. And we were having a family reunion in Bethany Beach, Delaware, a place that you guys really like a lot. And uh, we were get back with our family after five years, not being with cousins and extended family. And the third day in from being back from Mali, I was out running at about six in the morning and a car going 50 miles an hour, the driver fell asleep, went off the road, hit me. I was flipped into the windshield. I went 30 feet up and 70 feet out. So I'm literally a miracle here today. Um, I was pretty banged up. I did land in front of a community that was called The Preserve in a bunch of juniper bushes. So that should tell you something about the humor of God. Not only will he hit you with a car every once in a while, he'll do it in such a way to remind you that he's right there with you in that process. Um, I was pretty mangled up. My whole head was peeled back. Uh, I still have lacerations on my back, and, but I had no real major internal injuries except for a broken leg and some nerve damage. I was teaching at the seminary for that year, and there was this Vietnamese pastor who had come to the States and was studying at the seminary, and he was concerned about the scars on my head And so he would come into my office every day and anoint me with oil and pray that my head would become perfect. Um, If you look, it is. (laughs) Michael Jordan made this look famous, but I'm carrying it to the next level. About four months later, I was speaking in a church in New Jersey, and the youth pastor said, uh, I'm trying to teach my young people to pray for healing. At, the, at that point, I was doing, doing rehab for my back. He said, would you mind if I gather the youth group around you and pray? Uh, I said, yeah, that would be great. While they were praying, there was a bolt of heat that hit my body. Direct manifestation, my back was healed on the spot. That Monday, I went back into the place where I was doing rehab and said, I want to thank you for all you've done to get me to this point, but God finished it yesterday, and he has healed me. Okay, Two really incredible answers to prayer. Now, the scars on the head one seems a little bit kind of superfluous for me. I was glad to be alive. I really didn't care about scars on my head, but for some reason for this pastor, it was something he felt like he should pray for. And I'm glad I did because I'm a pretty good looking guy now with this head all carried <laughs> up, if I may say so myself. The rest of you are hiding behind your hair. There must be something really messed up on your head. Right, brother? Yeah, you're in this with me. Flash fo- forward to 2010. I'm pastoring in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I had a prayer something like this. Lord, we saw your answers to prayer in France and in Mali, in Nyack, They were open doors. When are you going to release miracles in our community? How are we as secular people that are so comfortable going to be drawn to you if we don't see your kingdom come? In the middle of that, there came the opportunity that I thought God had set up as the answer to my prayer. In the book, I call the man Tommy. I change his name to protect the family. But this family had started coming to Stanwich Church for a while, and they were new to the things of faith, but they were drinking it in. Uh, He was the second person in charge of probably the largest hedge fund in Greenwich, so very influential. And then all of a sudden, his brother had gotten a, a diagnosis of cancer. They tried all types of uh, treatments, but they were not having any success. And they were going to send him off to Switzerland for unique uh, opportunity. But before he went, they had a gathering at their house. We're standing in the center part of the house, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, this man's wife says, uh, we've been attending Stanwich Church, and our pastor is here tonight. You know, we've been seeing God do things in this church. Uh, We're going to ask him to pray for Tommy. Now, inside, I'm thinking, whoa. First of all, they considered Stanwich their church after such a short time, but they would entrust me to pray for his brother in front of all of these influential people of Greenwich. I'm thinking, this is the moment. You've set this up, God. This is going to be great. And I prayed for Tommy, and I prayed in Jesus' name, and I declared healing over him. Three months later, Tommy died. So how do you go from answers of prayer for scars on a head to something so significant like this that seems, from my vantage point, would have been a real boost to the kingdom of God? How do you come up with the incongruency of that? See, if we were to go around the room, I think all of you would pretty much agree, or at least 97.3%, that prayer is fundamental to our faith. If I said to you, how many of you think you shouldn't pray, I doubt you would raise your hand. Um, If you get sick in the next couple weeks, I know you won't raise your hand. Because desperate people pray. Uh, was it C.S. Lewis said, there are no atheists in foxholes. The more desperation there is, we pray. But if we're honest, we're a little bit conflicted with the mystery of prayer. How do we pray? I mean, Paul actually says in his letter to the Romans, um, we don't know how to pray. So the Holy Spirit prays through groans through us. How much is enough? Do I get to a tipping point in prayer where the things I'm looking for actually come into place? How much faith is required? If it's faith as a mustard seed, as Jesus said, is it just naming it enough? So why does he say, persist in prayer, keep praying over and over? Your pastor referenced that a couple weeks ago. Actually, I listened to his messages this morning to make sure I didn't say anything contrary to what he said. (laughs) But also just to kind of build off of some of the things that he said, because this is a series of entering in. Uh, Philip Yancey has written a book called Prayer I like Philip Yancey because I'm one of those people the cup's uh, half full in fact my wife says I don't even see the cup it's always flowing over I, I just believe all the time but some of us are half empty people just the way we're fabricated our personality and our life experience Philip Yancey is a half empty person so he really rounds my faith out well I read him all the time because it helps me get balanced in my life he says this, I have such a struggle with prayer because I can be in church and somebody will give a testimony about how God provided a parking space for them. And then we pray for a 5-year-old who never gets healed. How do you deal with all these things? But then Yancy comes to this conclusion, there's one significant reason to pray. Jesus prayed And if Jesus prayed, it would make sense that we would pray. This morning, I want to look at a passage that I think sets up this idea of the importance of prayer to Jesus because we are in the Jesus way, and if we're going to walk the Jesus way, we need to walk the Jesus way. And he prayed. So let's go to the passage. It's Mark chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn in it. We'll spend some time here. I think it will be projected for you behind me, so if you just want to watch or if you prefer to look on your device or your Bible, this is the passage. Beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose." And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Holy Spirit, would you bring a message to us now? Take over my mind and heart of where we need to go. Uh, Take over all of our hearts. Bring your anointing so that we would know what this word means for each one of us today. Only as you can do, Lord. Take one word spoken by your servant and transform it for all of us to receive. We look forward to what you're going to say in Jesus' name. Amen. When I preach, I like to teach as well, so I want to put this into context a little bit for you. Mark, the gospel according to Mark, is one of the four gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. It's just from the uh, Greek word to look with, look alongside. They're trying to give more of a chronological memory of what they experienced with Jesus. John writes some 30 years later, and he theologizes more. We get some of the same events, but from a different angle from John's perspective. But Mark was the first gospel recorded, probably around 60 AD, so this is a couple decades after Jesus walked on this earth, was crucified and raised, and ascended into heaven. We're pretty sure from church history that Mark got the gospel directly from Peter, that Peter was in prison dictating this to Mark. Now, that's interesting because we have situations that only Peter would have been involved in. Of course, he could have told it and Mark could have remembered it, but there's such vividness and explanation and long detail that you can hear Peter behind the stories. In fact, his gospel accounts, we refer to them as pericopes or narratives or stories, are much longer than Matthew and Luke's. Matthew and Luke, they shrink them down because their idea is, you've already heard Peter's voice, here's the essentials. In fact, this one that we're in right now, Mark uses 272 Greek words to tell it, Luke uses 144, and Matthew uses 110. And so this is Peter recounting exactly what he experienced with Jesus. Now you say, well, why do we have four Gospels? There's really only one Gospel. His name is Jesus. But it takes four to get different angles on Jesus. John says it this way, if everything Jesus did and said were to be recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in earth to cover it all. Now that's hyperbole, obviously. But it's showing that none of us can get our mind completely around Christ. And so God, in his wonder, gave us four Gospels to tell one Gospel story. Uh, Mark is in two parts. The first part is this uh, apostolic, spiritual authority Jesus who's casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom and passing that on to his followers. The second half is what we refer to as the suffering servant. There are only two miracles from this point of the story on, which is interesting that he includes one of them here is this boy being healed. It's showing the trajectory of how Jesus becomes king. He's gonna become king through a cross, which shows us that our gospel is so many ways upside down, like the kingdom that we're in. But one of the main points of Mark's uh, writing is the failure of the disciples to get it. It comes up over and over, and it doesn't make sense that it's Peter telling the story. Peter's the guy who always has the great faith. He's the cup half full like me all the time. But he's always the one falling on his face. That's why I like Peter so much. Makes me feel better about myself. But now he tells a story where others are the ones who aren't necessarily the heroes. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Jesus comes down with these three who had just been on the transfiguration mountain Um, It's interesting that God gives this transfiguration moment with the inner three, Peter, James, and John, because it's going to get really rough now. Remember, we're shifting now to the suffering servant. It's going to be hard to believe that Jesus is actually the king when you see these things happening to him. When they come off, they find the other disciples in this argument with some people, and the people say, "Uh, this boy has a demon, and your disciples aren't doing anything about it. Now, to put it in context, Jesus had sent them out in Mark chapter 6, and they had already been successful in doing this. Let me just read the verse so you get the context. It's not a matter of uh, them not knowing what to do. They had already proven that they know what to do. So they went out and proclaimed that people would, uh, should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the Jesus stuff is continuing through the people that are following Jesus. That's what the whole Bible is about. Will we do the Jesus stuff? Will we walk into it in the way that he did? And this moment, they're not being successful. Now, this passage feels a little bit out of place. When a biblical account seems odd to me when I read it, I want to stop and listen because the biblical writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is placing this here to make a very significant point. Peter, through Mark, wants us to understand that Jesus is going to give us one of the most essential teachings that he has given in all of his ministry. It goes on, verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus, in his frustration, looks at them and says, come on, are you going to continue to be faithless? Uh, earlier, it said, when Jesus came off the mountain, they were amazed. It's the word that sometimes is translated, they marvel at what Jesus does. There's only two times in the New Testament where it says Jesus was amazed or he marveled. One was in his own hometown of Nazareth when it said he could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He was amazed. And then a little bit later, when he's before the centurion, he says, This man has incredible faith to believe, and Jesus was amazed. See, Jesus only gets amazed at two things, lack of faith and faith. Isn't that interesting? That's in your Bible. I didn't make that up. Come along with me. I'm working up here. Some of you seem to be drifting a little bit on me. This is really important stuff for our faith walk. In this moment, Jesus is trying to bring their faith up. And he says, bring the boy to me. He's going to model for them. Verse 20. Uh, I have often said that the most significant prayer is help. Maybe the most theological thing we do after worshiping God and lifting up his name is to say help. It's acknowledging that he has the ability to step into our lives. It's acknowledging that he has done this in the past and we're still expecting him to do it now and in the future. Uh, When you ask for help for your kids, there's probably not a greater place of desperation in prayer than that. When I've seen my kids, uh, my twins are 35 now and my youngest son is 33, but at different stages in their life when I've seen them in trouble, my prayer has become desperation. Pastor Brian said it a few weeks ago or or last week. I don't remember. I listed both messages today, so it's all conflated for me. But he said it's very hard to pray when you're in so much comfort, right? It's not intuitive to pray when everything is going well. But when you're in desperation mode, especially for your kids and your grandkids, there's a pleading, almost a bartering before God. You'll say anything, Lord, I'll even go to Africa. Someone got that one, that's good. Come on, folks, come with me. (laughs) Keep coming. Um, Two years ago in March, my grandson, my first one, Charles IV, I'm Charles Andrew Davis III. My son, to honor me, called him Charles Andrew Davis IV. It's quite a legacy statement. If you talk about wanting to finish the race well, when you have someone named after you, uh, you want to finish well. Uh, two years ago, we got the phone call. Uh, There's a mass on Charles's brain. You better come home, Dad and Mom. Turned out he had a malignant cancer tumor at the base of his brain. Led to a seven-hour surgery, four rounds of chemo, five months in the hospital. We almost lost him several times. You want to talk about desperate prayer. I wasn't just praying for him. I was praying for his parents. I was pleading with God. Uh, He had a one-month-old brother at the time. Ingrid and I became the primary care for his brother Grant for six months so the parents could be in the hospital. Ingrid would put him in that little Bjorn and walk around. She said, "I, I didn't even know how to pray. All I could do was praise. I would text everyone in the morning that I knew who would pray for me. And she says this line, which I really love. My tears were liquid prayers. This man is absolutely desperate before Jesus. Can you help us? Jesus' response is great. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus keeps building the faith. We don't always get what we want in the time we want. I think I heard your pastor say that as well. But there's that aspect where the Lord is building our trust and confidence in him. Jesus only, as we sang it here today. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What humility. I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This is the hard part for us as secularists as people who have been pretty much raised with a naturalistic worldview, we don't think in spiritual terms and we're not aware of all the spiritual movings that are happening around us. And it's what makes prayer so hard for us. Uh, Yeah, how do you pray to a God? Yeah, he was incarnate on earth, but he's spirit now. I mean, I have a hard time having a normal conversation with people in the flesh, right? How much misunderstanding happens in that? And now I need to have spiritual antennas because the Holy Spirit will manifest in certain ways that we become sure that he's there, but in the same way, we are in a spiritual battle where the kingdom of darkness will manifest. The Holy Spirit's manifestation is unto life and to having you prosper. Dark kingdom manifestation is to bring destruction and to bring you down. What's powerful here, and I'm not going to take time, this is a whole uh, section on deliverance. You'll have to bring me back for another time to talk about deliverance ministry and how that happens. But in this moment, the demon recognizes the authority of Jesus. And Jesus operates in authority to send that spirit away, but he also operates in compassion and social concern. He picks the boy up. I love the complete ministry of Jesus. Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? This is the teachable moment. Uh, All the rest of the stuff I said has set us up for this one line. You're saying, well, pastor, why didn't you just say that from the beginning? Because you wouldn't have believed me. (laughs) I had to set you up or you wouldn't have gotten there. Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. When you hear that on the basis of this account, what seems odd to you about that phrase? Come on, you're thinking, people. What's odd about that? Jesus never prays in this account. He's come off the mountain praying. In fact, if you study the scriptures, never once when he heals or casts out a demon does he pray. The only time he prays is when Lazarus is raised from the dead and he says, Father, I'm not praying for this for you. I'm praying it for them so they'll know what's going on. And if you follow the disciples in the book of Acts, they do not necessarily pray for healing and casting out demons. They announce it. What's Jesus saying here? I have to do some interpretation. What's he mean when he says these only come? He's talking about the quality of your prayer life that you are in tune with the Father so that you're in that space to exercise what God wants done. You see, at the time of combat, the the amount of time and effort you've put in to become a person who dialogues with God, speak up, God is listening, listen up, God is speaking, will be the thing that will carry you through. My conversation with God when my grandson had cancer and was in the hospital for five months would have been greatly stilted if I didn't have a long life process of being in conversation with God. And I could trust him in that space. Now think about it from Jesus' own practice. He was constantly praying. We forget this sometimes. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, he begins his vocational ministry of, of announcing the kingdom and moving towards the cross and resurrection. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and we have that great picture of the spirit, the dove descending upon him, which launches him into his ministry. And the father saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And what's the first thing that the Holy Spirit drives him to do? He drives him into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days. That was the only reason to fast in that day. Uh, intermediate, intermediate, is that what's called? Intermediate fasting, intermittent fasting. I do it, but I don't know how to say it. <laughs> intermittent fasting wasn't a part of the scheme back then. If you were intermittent fasting, that meant you didn't have food. Okay. So if Jesus went out to fast, he was out there fasting to pray. This is the launching of his ministry, uh, Mark chapter one. Mark is this fast-paced gospel writer. Uh, he goes from event to event to event. He likes the word immediately. I think he uses it like 16 or 17 times. You can check that out. He's going from account to account. In chapter 1, he has Jesus meeting this guy in the synagogue who has a demon. He's healing. They're bringing people from him all over the place. And all of a sudden, the passage comes to a screeching halt. It says, early one morning, Jesus was off in a solitary place, Praying. It's so odd to the disciples, they come running to him and say, what are you doing here? Everyone's looking for you. This is the time to make things happen. Luke tells us that Jesus regularly went off to quiet places to pray. John says it this way. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. I only go where the Father is going. I'm only doing what the Father is doing. I'm only saying these things because I'm hearing them from the Father. It was the full ebb of his prayer life, of his conversation with God. The last seven words of Jesus. Have you ever been at one of those services where they do the last seven words of Jesus, or the last seven phrases of Jesus on the cross? Three of the seven are prayers. An interesting point is oftentimes they're prayers laced with Scripture. It was prayer in the Word that drove Jesus along. Jesus is not only our way to the Father, he's the way to live fruitfully in this world. Uh, I say it this way in my book. Uh, if you haven't gotten this book, I don't think you can ever be a good prayer without it. But <laughs> author shamelessly uh, put their books out there like that. This is how I summarize it in page 122. Jesus fulfilled his incarnational purpose in an ongoing conversation with the Father. God is speaking all the time. We need to have the antennas to know when he's speaking. I always love to be with the people of God to worship, but I got really juiced this morning when the first song that the worship team had selected was the song that I put on my car to drive over here today. God So Loved the World. Oh, I love that song. I was just introduced to it two weeks ago. And on the way here, I heard the Lord say, listen to that one. And then when they started singing, I'm going, God, you're going to say something today. He's speaking all the time. We just need to have antennas. That comes in the in the process of being in conversation with Him. Okay, what's my so what? I'm gonna land this plane. Prayer is the most significant place where you partner with God in this world. I would add this prayer in the Word. Because when I pray the Word, it keeps me from getting off on a lot of different spaces. Prayer is where we develop the relationship. Karl Barth, who was an amazing theologian, says you can't really get to know God without praying. Are you married? Good, you're sitting awful close. This would have been very embarrassing if you weren't. How have you gotten to know each other? Speaking, doing life together. Today is my 40th anniversary with my wife. I flew in from West Palm yesterday because I did a wedding in Greenwich and uh, she's flying in today and we'll celebrate tonight. We've spent 40 years of conversing to get to know one another. We're at the point now where we're regularly finishing one another's sentences. It's really weird. No, really, it's spooky almost. Or we'll say the exact, someone will start something and we'll both go and we look at each other That's from a long process of being in conversation. That's how you partner with God. Now here's the thing, you'll get to know him and so you'll have a trust level when things are going well and when they're not going well, but you'll get your marching orders from him there. He's the commander in chief. Do you wanna see transformation in your life? Uh, The answer to that one's yes, for some of you who are a little slower. Even if you don't want it for yourself, do you want to see transformation in your family's life? Your neighborhood? How about our country? Anybody happy about our country right now? No. That's a holy discontent. That's not just griping. It's a discontent that we're no longer kind people and working together. How are we going to see these kinds of changes and transformations? It's going to come by being in prayer so that we know God's assignments to be engaged in the kingdom. (laughs) Was that me? In Jesus' name, get out of here, whatever you're trying to interfere. You don't mess with these people's lives. They belong to Jesus. The now what is that you're going to have to make prayer a priority. Your pastor mentioned it was a discipline in one of his messages. Anything that you do well in life, you do by doing it over and over and over again. Uh, People are surprised by this, but I played basketball in university. I was obviously the point guard. I was the shortest guy always on the court. Um, But being low, I never turned the ball over. Uh, I was really good on defense. That's what got me on my team in university. The coach just kept me, and basically the idea was don't turn the ball over. Get it in the people's right hands and play defense. But he said, you know what, I want you to have a little more threat so that people don't just drop off of you. I didn't have a very good jump shot. He goes, I want to teach you a jump shot. And so for the first 10 weeks of the fall semester, I would meet him at 6 o'clock in the gym, and he would have a video camera there, and he would video me shooting hundreds of jump shots so that I could see what I was doing wrong and be able to collect the form. And I got it to the point where I could just hit just about anything. I went from having a terrible jump shot to having a very good jump shot. Today I'm 62 years old and my kids groan when they play horse with me because even though I can't jump, I still have the muscle memory. And you give me three or four practice shots and I can sit there and I can drain jump shots from 25 feet just while... If you want to go outside afterwards, I'll show you how this works. (laughs) Even in my dress shoes, I can show you how this works. How did I get there? It was practice after practice after practice prayer is the same way you just need to practice it now here's the cool thing in the beginning it feels like a discipline because it's uncomfortable especially those of you who didn't grow up in faiths that that allowed you to pray or modeled it for you but after a while it becomes a habit of grace where you don't even have to discipline yourself in it, it becomes the overflow of what God's doing in you. It becomes such a rich experience. Okay, I want to give you some really practical things to bring it home. They're in the book. I really recommend you read the book. Just trying to keep you with me. Stay with me. Four practical things. First is this. We live in a, a world of noise that makes it almost impossible to hear from God on a regular way basis. How can I know God's assignments on the street when I'm walking with my phone in front of my face all the time? How can I tune my ear to hear God when the first thing I do, I get up and I look at my email or my Instagram or my Facebook? We have so much noise. Uh, I'm a classic rock guy. Great band you guys got here. That was really good today. But I'm from the classic rock era. Sometimes the Lord says, would you turn that noise down? No, he doesn't say noise because he likes rock and roll too. (laughs) Jesus lives in me. I love rock and roll, so Jesus loves rock and roll. But he'll just say, turn that off for a while because I want to talk to you. I have some things that I want to tell you. We need to purposely cut the noise out of our lives. Uh, Your pastor called us a distracted generation. We are. We are. We need to get undistracted. Second practical point, have a non-negotiable time where you meet with God. Now, I have this, what's considered a disease to some people, but it's a blessing for me. I don't need to sleep. Um, I live on five hours of sleep. doesn't matter what time I go to bed. The Lord wakes me up five hours later. Uh, Sometimes my wife will say, well, it's nine o'clock. Let's go to bed. The grandkids have worn us out. And I said, you just know that I'm leaving this bed at two in the morning if we do that. That's fine. But that's just the way it's going to be. But God has had my attention in the morning for over 40 years. My extended family will say, Chuck, how come these things keep happening to you, these God moments? I will put it back to this. It's because I pray. My ears are tuned to what's God. Think about it. Of all the things the disciples could have asked Jesus, what's the one thing they ask him? Teach us to pray. I would have said, Can you teach me how to do that walking on water thing or turning water into wine or something else? Why did they ask for teach to pray? Because they knew everything else was flowing from that prayer life. Thirdly, write your prayers out. I've been journaling for since 1985. Now, I like to write, so it's a comfortable thing to me, but in my journals, there'll be a date, there'll be an opening prayer that I write to the Lord, the passage that I'm studying at that time, maybe an author that I'm reading, and a prayer to finish up. Uh, I'm in this new habit that I've been doing for the last maybe 15 years. The Lord will tell me what year of journal I'm supposed to read from the past. This year, he said, read 2005. So I just finished reading through my 2005 journal. You know what, writing the prayers down, it reminds me of how God has answered prayers that I forgot about long ago, and that I can trust him. There's actually a word in here. I was teaching at the seminary in 2005, and one of my students, you can see, scratched a note of prophecy during the class and gave it to me, and I put it in here, and I kept it as a a sign of what maybe God would do. When I read it, everything in that prophetic word has come true in the last 10 years. I scraped up her old email, hoping she still had it. And I sent her a message, and she said, Oh, Pastor, thank you for sending this message. It reminds me there are some things that God has spoken over me that I need to finish up. Write your prayers down. Because you'll forget the multiple times that God responds in unique ways. And finally, be in community in prayer. Prayer is not an individual sport. It's a community sport. You learn to pray by being with other prayers. Now, I was blessed. I grew up in a church in a time when we didn't have siloed ministry uh, by generation. On Wednesday night, everybody in the church got together in the church basement, and we were on uh, metal chairs, and we would kneel, and we would pray. I grew up hearing the prayers of adults around me. Prayer is just a comfortable thing to me. doesn't mean I understood it completely. I still want to grow in it, but it was there. When I became a pastor, there was a man in our church. He worked in the ball bearing factory. His name was Carl Tunnison. I dedicate this book to him. When Carl prayed, you felt like God walked in the room. You knew there was such an intimacy that God was pleased to be there in that moment. I said to Carl, as a young pastor, I said, Carl, I pray all the time, but I want to pray like you. Will you stop by on the way home from the ball bearing factory twice a week and we'll kneel in my office and we'll pray together? Get around people and pray. In December of 2019, I was coaching a pastor from Ontario. We were doing it via Zoom. And he said, You know, I'm having a hard time because I don't have, my church hasn't matured yet. And I don't have people who can pray on the same level as me. He said, uh, What should I do? And I said, Well, you probably have friends in different parts of the world that you've prayed with. Get together a Zoom group and begin praying. Uh, when I said that to him, it was like I knew the Lord was speaking to me because for 40 years, I had a prayer group that met in my life every week, and sometimes three and four prayer groups. But since we had become leadership coaches and we're traveling around the world, I didn't have that group anymore. So I contacted 11 of my friends who have prayed with the same passion that I've prayed over a number of years, and I've known them at different stages of my life, all the way from Palestine to California. And we'd made a commitment that uh, once a month, and it's become twice a month, we would meet on Friday at noon, because that gets us right in the middle of the time zones, and we would pray together. Little did I know that COVID was about to break out. That became our life support group. It's in community that you grow in prayer and that your life gets to the next step. All right, one more story. Remember how I told you that I was hit by a car? I told you the first two installments of healing? There's one more. 2007, when I had gone to Greenwich... If I sat in the car for more than an hour, I would limp. Even though I'd had no internal injuries, my ankle had been bent in such a way when the car hit me, the way they refabricated it, I must have just planted because uh, a, a nerve was torn here, I broke my leg there, and my ankle had a negative bend. There were three people in this church that I was pastoring in Greenwich, and we still weren't seeing the miracles that I was expecting, and I heard about a service in um, Westport, uh, Connecticut. The service was led by a pastor who had had a stroke, the kind of stroke where you drag your foot and you drool, and your muscles on one side are completely gone. He'd been at a healing service, and the Lord healed him on the spot. He actually walked off the stage completely healed, And the Lord said, not only am I healing you, I'm giving you a healing ministry. Every Wednesday night in his church, hundreds of people would gather for prayer. I thought these three people that I was pastoring deserved an opportunity to at least experience healing. We would prayed for them, nothing happened, so we went to this service together. It was my worst nightmare of a prayer service. He had invited somebody to speak. This guy wore a white suit with a white tie and white shoes, It felt like I was in a carnival. He played the violin and sang. Seriously. He spoke from Philippians. I can't remember what I spoke from three weeks ago, but I remember it was Philippians because he said nothing about the passage and he said nothing about healing. So the whole time through this healing service, I'm praying, Lord, help me not to judge this man. I can't believe my friend would bring him here unless your anointing is on him. I don't want to block your blessing for my three friends that I have here. And I must have prayed that prayer a hundred times. Then they have the line come up and there's just the one person praying. I I like team ministry. I like when the focus goes to Jesus, not necessarily the healer but I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm praying because I don't want to block what God wants to do for my friends. In the middle of it, this guy goes, hey, there's someone here who has a leg injury. And I'm going, yeah, there's like 200 of us in here that have leg injuries. So I'm not really bubbling with faith right now. (laughs) He says, it's your left leg. Now he's looking like this. No, it's my right leg. Then he says this, you were hurt in a running accident and you've been wanting to run. And I said, God, that's my healing. And against all of my lack of faith and grumbling in those moments, I went forward. And God, in that moment, healed me. I have not had any problem in my ankle since then. Twice, the pain has come back. And I've said to Satan, you cannot steal my healing. Jesus gave that to me. And it's for his glory. You can't have it back. See, sometimes even when we're not listening, being in community, somebody will hear for us, and they'll be the one that will amaze Jesus, and they'll have faith, and God will break through. This all happens in a community of prayer. Pray. I don't understand prayer any more today than I did when I started. In fact, I probably understand it less. There's more mystery to me in prayer than ever but I pray more than I've ever prayed. And that prayer is speaking to God, but also listening to him. Lord, I really sense that you're doing something in this body. There are people here that are hungry for you. We're all at different levels of this journey of prayer. If someone's at zero in prayer today, take them to one one of us is at five, take us to six. some of us are at ten, explode beyond what we ever seem possible. All we ask, Lord, is that as we converse with you, that Jesus would be lifted up, you would change our lives, you would transform our communities, and that you would heal our nation. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.